0: Welcome to the Gods of Tomorrow podcast, where we discuss religious deconstruction, secular humanism, political activism, and epistemology. Together, we explore how to solve human problems with human solutions. We deconstruct, we activate, and then most importantly, we live our fucking lives. I am your host, Josh Raw, and you are the gods of tomorrow. All right, all right, all right. Let's uh, let's do this shit. And we are back, kind of like Jesus from the grave, but instead of three days, it's been about three weeks. I'll be honest with you, this summer has hit hard and I've been a little slow to the draw, but I am Josh Roth. I'm still making podcasts. You can call me Josh. And this is episode 8 of The Gods of Tomorrow. And today we're going to be talking about the methodology and psychology of Christian indoctrination. This is something I'm a little bit more comfortable with than all the other topics, just because of my own experience and my own work in behavioral health. And so I'm kind of excited to dive into this. I'm actually penciled in to potentially talk about this on other podcasts later on this year in 2022. And I hope that happens, but I figured I'd give you guys the the raw uh, breakdown of some of these things for us to be able to talk about and have a discussion because indoctrination is a real thing. It does happen. It does occur. And I have many folks that not only follow me on social media, but in my Discord or on my Patreon that talk to me about their indoctrination and how difficult it has been to break away from those early teachings that were just imprinted on their brain against their will. Now, I want to start off by saying that most secularists, from what I understand, what I've read and researched, tell us that there's about three possibilities for why humans have a tendency toward religious belief. One, humans may not have been able to explain life or death, and so religious belief filled the vacuum of knowledge. Two, it may be a product of cultural indoctrination. Or three, it is an evolutionary product that humans are predisposed to develop. Now, in this chat today, we're going to primarily be talking about religious belief being perpetuated through cultural indoctrination. Now, as a disclaimer, I think I should say, which I've said this before, that religion itself, I don't think, is inherently wrong. I have said before that religion has done some valuable things for communities and individuals, and I stand by that, but I more strongly know that there are immense dangers in indoctrination, especially considering the susceptibility of children. I mean, this can produce adults who are impressionable and susceptible to irrational and unreasonable thought processes. Now, when I'm talking about indoctrination, I'm talking about various methods that are used to inflict groups of values, ideas, doctrines, onto an individual which they then come to associate with their own identity many defenders of indoctrination will tell us that indoctrination isn't always destructive and with a simple examination yeah um, i would agree with that statement we indoctrinate at many levels of society Uh, this includes cultural imprinting political values being taught educational principles societal laws And even dogmas of religious faith, which occur without coercion, deception, or psychological violence. In some sense, indoctrination can be healthy and it can be constructive in nature when it doesn't injure the psyche or uh, when it promotes positive growth in one's personality. Personally, I believe that individuals should have the autonomy to choose what type of indoctrination they wish to be subjected to. Um, As early as possible when they have the ability to reason that out, which honestly is not possible for most children, especially young children. And that's probably my biggest issue with religious indoctrination when we see it being used in ways that do have coercion, deception, and especially psychological violence. Um, It really just rubs me the wrong way, to be frank. Now, there's this individual, I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with him. Uh, his name is M. Hand. And I wrote a paper in 2002 that was titled Religious Upbringing Reconsidered, where the following framework for the definition of indoctrination was put forth, uh, specifically in regard to children. They said, One can impart knowledge on another person in a number of ways. One way is to appeal to reason and rationale by showing evidence of what is known to be true, such as with a math formula or a scientific demonstration. Another is to appeal to reason and rationale by acting as an authority figure who has witnessed the actual evidence for what has been shown to be true, which may be the case with anyone who has experience in a field. Clearly, these two instances are not indoctrination, because each includes both an appeal to reason and a reference to what has been proven to be true. And because the acquired knowledge is based on active reasoning, it allows for that information to be amended and revised in the future should additional or contradictory proof appear. Indoctrination takes place when one circumvents reasoning and imparts a way of thinking based on something other than the force of evidence so that the child holds the beliefs irrationally without regard for evidence. That's really powerful there, thinking about delivering information to a child to believe it without evidence that is going to be held irrationally to the point that it's ingrained in the mind so deep that they then have an issue ever having a regard for evidence, even if it counters that belief. Teaching religious beliefs cannot entail either of those first two methods that are talked about there by M. Hand, because no religion can be currently proven to be true. But when religious teachings bypass decisive rationale, reason, and evidence uh, to impart these beliefs by exerting this psychological pressure or acting as a false authority figure, that is indoctrination, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Now, I'm going to be giving you a long laundry list of examples of indoctrination that take place in the church that exert this psychological pressure. The first example is monologicality, which is essentially a fancy word for information and sensory deprivation. This is going to include Anything that speaks against a specific monologue or message. They're going to call it sinful, whether it be mass media, parents, scientists, friends. They're going to demand that an individual isolate themselves from certain social environments, questioning an individual's thoughts if they're in opposition to a specific dogma, and so forth. We can probably all think of examples of where this has taken place in a church setting. Another feature of indoctrination is an emphasis on binary thinking. See, humans have this tendency to form groups and categorize them, and those that are not practiced in adaptive thinking will oftentimes try to narrow situations into simplistic terms and oppositional groups, such as good and evil, saved or unsaved, or the chosen and the damned. One of the foundations that we see especially is this encouragement of rigid us-versus-them thinking and those that are really indoctrinated into a certain belief system are going to show those similar signs of binary thinking. Another example is counter-argumentation. This usually comes about in the form of special brochures, booklets, video and audio clips, or anything that has beforehand prepared answers to standard questions that may discredit the authority of the religious organization. They also have individuals that undergo special classes, or training to be able to refute anyone who would be bringing up an argument about their doctrine. There's also what is called the reduction of resistance methodology. This is a psychological tactic used to train individuals to be more suggestible to the doctrine that's being presented to them. They may have them reject food, go long periods of time with sleep deprivation, read through a selection of prayers or other ritual practices, or stand and sit on command. It puts the brain into a place of accepting information as being true without questioning it because the body is already at the command of the fake authority member. Another tactic that's used is verbal multiplication. We're familiar with this where there's frequent repetition of meaningless phrases. I heard this all the time in the church during the course of religious rituals, uh, like God is good all the time, all the time God is good, or the purification of the spirit or joining in the union with brothers and sisters by faith or something to that measure. There's always a repetition of unlimited meaningful prayers, which can lead to prohibitive inhibition, which dramatically reduces how critical individuals can be of their newfound perception of reality. It essentially puts a dampener on their ability to think critically about what is happening around them now emotionality is another tactic that's used to manipulate people into a belief system this is where organizations exploit the emotional component of an individual and then miraculously help them by bringing them some form of emotional stabilization oftentimes we see emotionally depressed people or individuals with broken social relationships being targeted by churches, where in truth, they're being given what should be a natural human response, but instead it's offered to them underneath this guise of something godly or otherworldly. And while I'm going to talk more about the psychology of other methods in a bit, I want to mention collectivism here. This has a lot to do with group social dynamics that we will talk about also in a little while, but it has to do with the impact on an individual's thoughts, emotions, feelings, and ideas when they're being supported by a group or even being encouraged to copy a required behavior within a social setting. Recently, I spoke with an individual who was taught to speak in tongues in church, and they chatted with me about how they were being coached by the other leaders, the deacons, the priests, and how to speak in tongues so that they would not feel left out. And for me, that's a prime example of what collectivism is. Now, if you're not familiar with a man named R.J. Lipton, he talks about how collectivism specifically, in one of his works called The Thought Reform, now this was a study where he looked at how mentally healthy, educated, and idealistic people could even become fanatics within an ideological and religious setting. He found that if an environment was strictly controlled leaders demanded purity through the use of binary thinking like good versus bad. If you could create a cult of confession where intimate knowledge destroyed the boundaries of personality and placed individuals in a constant sense of guilt, if the doctrine was held higher than the individual itself, and the language could be warped to only serve that inner group along with a few other findings, What Lipton said was that you could successfully indoctrinate individuals. Essentially, you re-socialize individuals by manipulating their basic human needs and destroying the sense of their previous identity so that their newfound identity is strongly fixated within the new belief system. Now, this is easily reinforced through things like social conditioning, stimulus and response equations, operant conditioning, Uh, which I promise I'll talk about all of those in more detail before the end of this episode. Now, other tactics uh, that I may have missed out on include controlling the time and activities of the individuals. Uh, I remember going to church three or four times a week, being given homework assignments, prayer assignments, sermon assignments, reading assignments, to the point that I was physically and emotionally exhausted, which in tandem leads to being highly suggestible and also causing a decrease in critical thinking um, or being able to make informed decisions. There are also methods of weaning individuals from critical rational thinking, verbal manipulation, confessional sessions, uh, demanded therapy from the priest to coach your feelings and your thoughts and your behaviors, uh, group pressure that reinforces you to act right Um, or to say the right things, have the correct statements, and so forth. In 2011, there was an individual named Dr. Marlene Winnell. You may be familiar with her. She had termed Religious Trauma Syndrome, or RTS. She was trying to describe this collection of symptoms and challenges often faced by people who were struggling with leaving an authoritarian, dogmatic religious community. And this syndrome is characterized by any or all of these following things general confusion difficulty with decision making and critical thinking disassociation identity confusion anxiety panic attacks depression suicidal ideation anger grief guilt loneliness lack of meaning sleep and eating disorders nightmares sexual dysfunction financial stress employment issues rupture of a family or social network The list goes on and on, and from what I've told you from some of these tactics that are utilized and what they do to the psyche, it probably is not that surprising that people that then leave that environment are struggling with this long list of different symptoms and challenges. I'm gonna shift gears just a little bit here before we run out of time, because I do want to point out that although much of this appears to be intentional in the way that it's delivered there are also some natural human tendencies that are at play that make it easier for these to impact those that are being targeted see the human mind seeks to rectify contradictions and religious education can serve that function especially in young children this is why billy graham's son really pushed to train children in the church to then go and indoctrinate children in the public schools because oftentimes at a young age children have a lot of questions and contradictions about life and death and meaning and what happens in the course of life and if he could tackle those contradictions with religious education, they'll be able to convert more children. Young children unfortunately fall victim to social constructs before they fully form ideas about those constructs. We as a species are social and it's natural for us to group stimuli including people into groups this is typically done based on our social identities and our intergroup attitudes this has been studied time and again where we see individuals grouped together based on similarities that differ from non-group members the differences found often become a source for action determining the specifics of how the in-group is going to behave. And then they're going to create actions to protect those differences, which in turn become defense mechanisms that can even lead to aggression. A perfect example of this is how an irrational argument has been presented that extending rights to homosexuals will damage heterosexual marriages. This is tribalism at its finest, which often presents itself On the other side of reason. But this in-group and non-group distinction has been studied in schools and communities with segregation for people of all ages, including children, and it holds true that those within the community hold focus on the enemy as being different to them to the point that their perceived social status, belief, or even their pinpointed hatred is ingrained so deep that they refuse to question their conformity, or how they initially attained that position. And my point with all of that is just looking at how children can be susceptible, or humans in general, because of our nature, to this in-group, out-group behavior, and how the indoctrination of churches can perpetuate those problems found there by creating a very specific in-group that can have very dangerous ideas to those that don't fall within their set community. Now, I promised to talk a bit about operant conditioning, social conditioning, etc. before we ended, and before I do, I do want to share a quick fact with you. We know that religious organizations attempt to reach young children because they tend to stay within the faith that they're brought up in. Even Christian evangelist operatives tell us that once the child reaches the age of 13, the chances drop from 32 to 4% that they will be converted. And for this reason, they oftentimes try to bring children into the church prior to the age of 13. For several years of my career, I worked in behavioral science as a behavior specialist to modify behavior or change it entirely. And one of my favorite examples of this happening in the church is their youth program, Awanas. I think that it serves as a really good example of of how operant conditioning, social conditioning, etc. is utilized within the church. And while we're talking about a children's program here primarily, you can probably think of examples of this that happen throughout church services. But Awanas is a discipleship program for children in church that boasts reaching 4 million kids every week in 120 countries so that they can love and serve Jesus for a lifetime. They target children between two years old and fifth grade. So before they reach the age of 13, while that brain is still malleable and they put them into specific in groups of Puggles, Cubbies, Sparks and truth training categories. It's broken up into three sessions. When they attend their Awanas course, they have handbook time, game time and discipleship time. Now, for those that are not familiar, Handbook time is for the memorization of verse studies, where they use rewards in the form of badges and praise, and punishment in the form of guilt and humiliation. Game time, when they meet, is a period of fellowship with others for social conditioning, reinforcing many of the concepts that we've spoken about earlier. And then discipleship time is where they get extra badges for converting people or bringing others to the program or they're being forced doctrine by authority figures and so on. It is an extremely manipulative means of indoctrinating children before they can consciously, critically, or even consider what they're being forced to believe at these early ages. Grown adults are reinforcing and supporting a specific belief system through intense emotional connection to control behavior of the youth in their care. They tell them how to pray, when to stand, what to eat, what stories to believe, and the list goes on. And again, most of these things have no empirical evidence. While many parents and guardians probably don't understand it fully, they're actually playing on the natural insecurities in the children. They're using hyperbole, generalization, fear, passive aggression, and gaslighting to force a child into a belief system. I feel like I should mention that those that work in behavior management have an entire code of ethics they have to follow that don't allow them to use any of these tools through these methodologies of operant conditioning, reward and punishment systems, or behaviorism. And to my knowledge, and somebody correct me if I'm wrong, that churches and religious authorities don't have any governing body to stop them from doing psychological harm. There are three primary ways that this continues in the church, even into adult worship practice. One, there's behaviorism. We have positive and negative reinforcement that takes place. We have operative conditioning, where we see where there are stimulus and reinforcers that are quickly put in. Everyone sees that offering plate, you're putting in 10%. If you don't, somebody's looking at you wrong and you're being shamed. We have the reductionist approach, where... Your learning is given to you in small chunks. And then there's also, of course, gamification with leaderboards and badges. I remember my church running a challenge to see who could read the Bible in the shortest amount of time to win some type of reward and, of course, be publicly praised. Another way is cognitivism. This is having readings and lectures that are constantly ongoing. You have motivation, you have church groups and small Bible studies that take place. And in the course of all of this, they change the schematic of how we understand knowledge or how we understand the information that we're reading. This is why so many people always ask the question of, what, you read the Bible that many times and you didn't turn away from it? When you are in the process of being indoctrinated through this cognitivism approach, you're being told how to interpret it, you're being told how to understand it, and it makes it really hard to think about it critically. Then there's the social, contextual way that indoctrination continues in the church. You have participation, you have modeling, you have a community of practice. I think you can probably go to any church this Sunday and go in there and sit in the back row, and you are going to see the modeling that takes place from not only parents to children, but community member to community member. You're going to see them going through specific rituals and practices and saying similar things all in unison together, um, which is an expectation. And then you're going to see a level of participation, not only in the church surface itself, but also in the small groups or what's going to be scheduled throughout the week in terms of them doing baking sales or uh, Saturday night games for the youth or maybe a retreat or a revival that's going to be taking place. All these things occur within the church setting to keep people plugged in. Jonah Kaner sums up the difference between education and indoctrination pretty well. And I want to end this with his quote. He says, education opens the mind while indoctrination closes it. Education is a process-driven approach to engaging with knowledge and ideas of the world. Indoctrination, on the other hand, is a results-driven approach that aims to instill in people a set of habits and beliefs that align with an ideology or political agenda. I think that says it beautifully, and I commend him for writing something so remarkable. As for the rest of you, thank you so much for hanging out with me again and talking about this difficult topic. I feel like I've only brushed on the surface, so let me know if there's something else that you would like for me to talk about. You can always look at my Patreon or my Discord and come in there and talk with me specifically if there is a certain episode that you would like me to feature. Otherwise, get out of here. Go out there and live your best life. And I'll talk to y'all next time.